a truly collaborative environment requires a certain degree of intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you both having done therapy and run groups and all sorts of things, I can say uh, intimacy is something people are quite afraid of. Yeah. And depending upon your background, you can be a little bit afraid of or right down the line to terrified about. Mm-hmm. So even, I mean, even in couple relationships and all, uh, it, real intimacy is can be experienced as scary. So many people will block a group from growing or developing. We call that control or in some other cases, storming. But it's a, a way to block interpersonal relations from developing because we're afraid of being swallowed by the others or abandoned by the others. Alpha Relations, driving change forward. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the next episode of Alpha Relations. We have a very special guest with us today. Uh, he is a mentor. He is a, an instructor, a uh, wizard of his own craft, which we shall explain. It is my friend and yours, everyone, Dr. Timothy Farmer. Please give it up. Give it up. Give it up. Welcome, Dr. Farmer. Can I just add that they call you a mentor when you get past 70? Oh, <laughs> well, hey. Instead of saying he's he's old, you just say he's a mentor. <laughs> I like that. I like that. How are you, my good sir? I'm fine today. Thank you. Good, good, good. We're, we're glad you're here, that you were able to join us. And here we are in the world of virtual reality, which you and I and everyone else have been getting quite acquainted with mm-hmm. uh, with the ups and the downs, working on Zoom and other platforms as well. And it's just nice. I, I think I think so far so good, considering the fact that we've been able to adapt from what we were doing just, uh, what was it, eight months ago yeah, in person and as to where we've come now. And I just wanted to start off by asking you, what have you, what have you been feeling or what have you been thinking rather, having gone through that transition from uh, in-person learning to online? Well, I, I had avoided online because I wasn't sure I could fit the format of it. I just wasn't sure. But like many things in life, I was sort of forced into it. And um, it's turned out, in my opinion, to be very good for me and for my students. I seem to, I kept my kind of my normal pace. I have a tendency to go over notes, tell a story, give an example, discuss the matter, move on to some more notes, and all the time asking students if they have questions, queries, challenges. Sometimes they have challenges. And um, it turns out, I think, that my personal format fits this uh, online learning quite well. Um, It helps that I know the material so that I'm casual with the material, comfortable. It's uh, it, it feels fluid to me, so it's easy for me to bring up my stories, etc. So my answer is, I went into it with some reluctancy, but seems my my natural format fits it. Awesome. I would I would agree with that. I would agree mm-hmm. with that. 
Um, so Dr. Farmer, here you are. And what we'd like to do at the start with all our guests is just for you to take a moment just to tell us a bit about who you are, where you're coming from, and how all of that has led to what we're doing now with uh, AHSC and human relations. Wow. It's going to be a big one. I mean, you only give me an hour. Uh, okay. Well, um, I grew up in the United States, came to Canada when I was 19. So I've been in Canada longer than I was lived in the States. Um, originally went to Montreal. I didn't even know they spoke French in Montreal. That's, I was a typical arrogant, ignorant American. I didn't even know that. In for a surprise. Yes, I was. <laughs> yes. Actually, a silly, funny story is one day I was speaking to a man, and I just said, uh, very, because my mother would do this as a boy, she would uh, speak to us. She, she knew about 10 or 15 words in French, that's all. But she would say things like merci or il n'y a pas de quoi or something. And so one day I said thank you to a man, but I said merci, not thinking about anything. I'd only been in the country three or five days, and he broke out in French. And I went inside my head, oh, my God, don't do that again. <laughs> because, of, because, of course, I had no idea what he was saying. And I, you know, I guess I said merci pretty good. I mean, it's hard to mess up that word, but I guess I said well enough that he thought I actually spoke French. So I realized you can't you can't pull around with that here; that you'll get in trouble. So um, then I uh, met a young French Canadian, a lovely young woman, and we got married, had children. I went to university. I actually did my bachelor's at uh, what is now Concordia, but in those days it was Loyola College. That was before it became Concordia. And um, then I went to, uh, I worked for a while, and then I got my master's degree at the University of Vermont, in Vermont, obviously. And um, then eventually moved to Ottawa, uh, got a divorce, uh, remarried Christina, who... Uh, I refer to frequently in my courses, my wife, and um, uh, she had three children. So, well, actually, both of us have lost a child. She, so I'm sorry, when we hooked up, she had two children. Uh, she had just six months earlier lost her son in a car accident. He was a passenger in a car and was killed. So uh, we've been together since the late 90s. Wow. Um, as old as us then. Yeah. Pardon me? That would be as old as us since uh, we were yep. all born at the yep. end of the 90s. Yeah, you yeah. Could, no, sure. You could you could easily be children or grandchildren. Um, that my oldest grandchild is 14, so he's probably about 10 years younger than some of you. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, and then uh, I did my PhD at the University of Ottawa where I worked as a counselor. Then I opened up a private practice. Then I started to teach at Concordia part-time and have my private practice. I did that for many years. And then um, when my daughter died in another car accident, totally separate from Christina's, having nothing to do with 
her son's death at all. Um, uh, I stopped my private practice. I thought I found I was too emotional. And so I, um, I just taught and now I'm teaching. I'm at what is called a full-time part-time or a senior part-time. I'm at the top of the seniority, not the very top, but near the top of the seniority. At, uh, in our department, I usually get the courses I want. And um, I've continued to teach into my 70s because it's good for me. It's good for my mind. I hope it's good for my students. I hope so. I and um, and Christina takes care of our newest grandson, Kingsley, who anyone who takes a course knows about. <laughs> if you guys are lucky, I'll give you a few Kingsley stories because um, <laughs> he has such wonderful, wonderful, cute, silly little boy stories to, <laughs> that he does. And um, and now this online is working very well because mm -hmm. I can stay home with Christina and Kingsley. Mm -hmm. So I like that. That is very true. Mm -hmm. That is something. You know. And I wanted to ask you, so, I mean, it, you've had a, a wide journey, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of different institutions and working in counseling. But what I'd like to explore with you is um, uh, AHSC, Applied Human Sciences, um, how long have you been involved in the department? Well, I took my first courses, I think, the first course I took, I think, was 1974. Wow. Hmm. And I took a course, um, really, it was a, uh, the very first thing I had to do was a two-week workshop, residential workshop up north, at a place called Sun Valley. And so you would go up there for two weeks and study in a residential environment, study human relations, group dynamics, things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I studied that and Hedley Dimmick was there. He, Hedley Dimmick is the man who created this department. In 1968 is my belief. He opened up this department, and it's sort of a combination in between psychology and sociology. It's really, really social psychology, people in groups, people interacting in groups, and so on, which I always found of everything. I took psychology courses, and I took sociology courses, and I was always in my mind most interested about people in groups. I found that fascinating. So... That's the first time. And then I continued to take courses, these uh, w workshops. There'd be 14 days, 15, 15 days, 14 days, 10 days, things like that, on and on. And one of the professors who's still around, Ray Cass, was actually, uh, I worked with her. Wow. As her TA. I was Ray Cass's TA. No kidding. I think in 75 or 76. I can't remember. I was her TA. Wow. And just for our viewers out there, um, would you mind just telling us in a sentence or two who Ray Cass is? Mm -hmm. Well, Ray Cass, um, she's the senior most professor. Uh, she's um, even, well, I okay. Anyways, she's senior in uh, many ways, let's mm -hmm. put it that way. Fair enough. <laughs> and um, she started with courses. Uh, she had her, I think she had a bachelor's or master's degree in social work and then started to take courses with Headley and 
was uh, graduated from our program somewhere in there. I can't, I, I really am not sure. I think she started taking the courses back in 68 or so. I, I really am not sure exactly. That would have been, I think, the first courses. And she, um, I always called her the princess of the department. That is, she was the Headley superstar. Ray was, Ray caught on to this kind of teaching, this kind of work almost instantly. And um, was, well, kind of a superstar. She was, everybody liked her. All, all the students admired her once she began to teach. Uh, she was just very good at all of this work and a good mentor and a, a good inspiration for everyone. And she's still around now, but she only teaches one course. I'm not even sure if she may, I don't think she's retired because they would have announced it. I think she's still teaching one course. In the in the masters, the or yeah, in in the department, probably at the masters level would be my guess. Okay, huh. with COVID and all the rest, I've lost some contact with her, but mm -hmm. um, she's yeah, she's I, I'm pretty sure she's still around teaching one course, and Ray has contributed a tremendous amount of time, energy, and money, and that's a biggie, mm -hmm. to the department to help enhance the department and make it available to students who may not be able to afford things, et cetera. So her commitment has been quite powerful, a major influence after Headley left. So we've heard definitely. And yeah. knowing too that, I mean, one of our, our uh, most significant textbooks that we use, you know, is, uh, it's by her right yeah. there. That's yeah, right. That's, that's it. right. You Holy, do have a textbook. Holy grail. Yeah, no, that, definitely. That's true. It's come in, uh, come in handy on more than one occasion in more than yep. one course. <laughs> yeah, actually, because like, actually, I was actually just about to say the same thing. Alan was about to say, like the we have the the book from uh, Ray Cass of um, theories of small group development, I believe, I, and I think I got it from actually your course. Mm -hmm. And we sort of explore, like, you know, we explore Schultz, uh, Schultz, and and um, Lacourcier and Tuckman. And uh, mm -hmm. before before coming into this this uh, the meeting, we were sort of like talking about different topics, and we sort of came across um, Gibb. Um, in which Alan said that you actually knew. Um, so I was sort of just interested to sort of... Um, Jack Gibbs, yes. Yeah, Jack B Gibbs. Yeah, I, we, I didn't know him intimately. I knew him. I met him. I've okay. spoken with him. Uh, I was never at his house for supper, but uh, <laughs> okay. I knew him and his wife and his wife. Nice. Mm -hmm. Well, back in... Um, I think it's the summer of 75, but I can't be sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Gibbs came to Concordia and gave a weekend uh, experiential workshop based on his theory. And what you guys call the G Lounge now, in those days was called the Gedangin Lounge, which now we can understand why it was easily changed to the G Lounge since um, Gedangin oh. is a heck of a word to get out. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And he had 150 people there wow. in that lounge. So it was packed with everybody. Uh, no chairs. We all sat on the floor. Of course, that's just in the hippie days, too. <laughs> so that wasn't a big deal. And it turned out by sheer coincidence, I ended up in a group with his wife. So she was a member of our group. And he broke us up into groups. and. We went through a series of, don't ask me the exercises, I cannot remember. 
<laughs> but exercises and other activities, uh, including just free discussion, um, uh, based on his theoretical uh, outline, and uh, he presented the outline to us, the, the Tory. Mm -hmm. um, trust, openness, realization, and interdependence. Mm. Um, and it went for me very well. Mm. However, I would say out of the 150, there were about 10 people who were very disturbed and wanted to sit down in your chair, get on the blackboard, paper and pencil, three-day course. Okay. And he he didn't do that, and he wasn't going to do that. And at one point, I don't know the day. I'm going to say Saturday afternoon. It started on a Friday. Saturday afternoon, there was a real revolution in there. For Like I said, about 10 people. Wow. It was a small group. And one man who had a uh, very loud, aggressive voice. And I really had some fear that there was going to be a fist fight. I mean, he was very demanding. And I think Jack just basically said he'd give him back his money and he could go home, hmm. uh, which didn't seem to satisfy the guy because he whatever was going on with the guy. So what it was is that Jack did not provide us enough structure. So if you guys think, in 232, I don't give you a lot of structure. I give you 10 times the structure Jack gave us. He really gave you very little structure, and you had to fill it in. So if you had any paranoia in your background, it could easily inflame it. It could just easily go, you know, this is a trick. There's something going on here. What's this about? Who are these people? Whatever. And I really think that the man that was so aggressive, so aggressive, mm -hmm. I could understand some people upset they wanted more structure, but he was uh, right on the edge of out of control. Mm -hmm. And um, I really think he, he may have had some sort of mental problem or um, was paranoid. I don't know. He just couldn't stand it. He just couldn't stand that free flow, open uh, trust atmosphere. It, he, he didn't trust. And I think eventually on Saturday, my memory is, is that he just disappeared. I think Jack gave him his money and he went home and that was exactly what happened. And Saturday night and Sunday turned out to be uh, much more pleasant. Friday night was pleasant. Saturday morning was pleasant. It was really Saturday afternoon that that, that happened. But overall, most of us really enjoyed it. And if you are able to feel the trust and build the trust and explore the trust and then become open and so it it was a wonderful experience. Hmm. That's awesome. That's great. I, you mentioned that it was sort of more of like a, a hippie time back then. How how was the two thirty two course back then compared to like like today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, much more hippie. <laughs> much more hippie. So um, I will edit some things. I'm telling you now. Mm. <laughs> Um, because uh, red, red, redact uh, a few things, eh? Yeah. Redact, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those, those things that are blanked out are blanked out for a reason. Fair enough. Fair enough. But um, first off, in those days that you're referring to, the 70s, mm -hmm. actually 230 and 232 were one course. That's what it was. Oh, okay. So the 230 about 
interpersonal communication mm-hmm. and 232 groups. That was one course. That's what it was. Okay. There are now two two separate courses completely. Yeah. But in those days, they were one six-credit course. And um, without joking, and I'm not, we all sat on cushions on the floor. Nobody sat in chairs. If you had somebody, if someone really wanted to sit in a chair, no one would block them or refuse to let them do it. There was no, but uh, that didn't happen often. But most of the time, if that happened, it happened because they had a bad back or something and they they needed to sit upright and sitting on cushions or bean bags, bean bags, that was the biggie. Big bangs or cushions was just, they couldn't do it because of their back. Yeah. Um, so it was a much more intimate, interpersonal, um, there were no computers, there were no tables, no tables, uh, mostly no chairs, except for once in a while. And we let the students, unless it was something, you know, outrageous, we let the students run the show and then we would just reflect what happened. Mm-hmm. This was, and it was so, in the 232 working in task groups, correct? Right, in both. The okay, 232, in both. Remember, they're one course. Right, okay, combination. Combination. So as a simple example, I was running one. Now, we also taught downtown. We taught on Bish, um, Bishop Street across from the Hall building. There mm. was a house there. Mm-hmm. And that house was dedicated to our department. And so... when you went inside, it was a house. So they had converted uh, living rooms into offices and kitchens into offices and so on, and upstairs bedrooms into meeting rooms and things like that. There were no beds, of course. There were cushions and, like I said, cushions, beanbag chairs, and a few upright four-legged chairs, but not too many. Um, So one time I was breaking my group up. This is I was teaching. First course I taught was 1979. Uh, I told that to a course once about five years ago, and one young lady went, oh! <laughs> I, said, I said, yes, I'm that old. <laughs> it's true. So I taught, I taught a course in 1979. So this would have been like 81 or something, 82. And um, I went... I was I broke the group class into its groups and then I was about to go up with the group I was in. I didn't have so many TAs in those days. I was about to go up to the group I was in and somebody stopped me about something. So I ended up getting up there about three or four minutes late because I was stopped by a student. And when I got in, everybody was getting up to leave the room. And I just walked in the door and I just looked. I said, what's happening? Oh, we're all going next door to the restaurant. And I said, oh, how did this happen? (laughs) Oh, we all, some young man said, oh, we all decided that's what we wanted to do. So I said, well, I'm not trying to stop you, but I do want to slow you down for a minute. I just walked in the room. So I know I haven't agreed, but I, I, can I just can we just review what happened here? So how did we get to this decision? Mm-hmm. So there was a short discussion led by a particularly young men and two women. Everybody had decided. Everybody wanted. They couldn't talk in this room. It was too confining. It wasn't safe. It wasn't. I don't know. Whatever. Just 
ramble on and on and on. So I, we teach about um, uh, counterdependency is part of the course. And I said oh, to myself, my God, this is counterdependency in spades. It's like got neon lights on it. Okay. <laughs> so I said, well, if that's what people want to do, let's go. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay with it. So we went next door. We ended up at a long table. There were about 10 of us in the group. I can't remember exactly, around 10. We ended up at a long table. It was, in those days, it was a uh, smoked meat restaurant. And we had trouble to, it took a while to get served and everything to take place. So we were over there, I would say a good 20 minutes good 20 minutes before we were being fed and so you couldn't hear people at the other end the waiters were still talking to the people i mean the waiters had no sense this was a class they they so you know what did you want mustard on your smoke meat blah, blah, blah. so it was quite disturbing <laughs> and then at one point i used a spoon and i hit my glass and i got everybody's attention and i said i just want to remind us why is it we came here again because we couldn't hear one another. Good question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At which point the whole class, the, you know, the attends, everybody burst out laughing because you couldn't hear anything. And except me, you heard me because I quieted everybody down. Even the waiters took the hint of, to shut up. <laughs> and um, so everybody started to laugh and so on. And then we used that and it was a wonderful uh, experiential activity that they accidentally designed for themselves hmm. to experience counter-dependence. And the real reason that they did this is they were trying to take power away from me as the leader, the teacher and the leader, and run the class the way they wanted. Mm -hmm. And I invited them. I said, let's do it and let's learn from it. I was. It made absolutely no sense to me to go to the restaurant. Mm -hmm. No sense at all. Conversations like you can't talk in these rooms. Mm -hmm. And that kind of made no, they were perfect. It's, yep. it's as simple as it became a wonderful learning experience for the students about counterdependence and how groups try to, try, if you give them elbow room, they try to steal the power, which is, can be great. Uh, you know, a smart, a smart leader can let them steal so much power. Mm -hmm. Anyways, it was a wonderful learning experience, but that's we let the students do much have much more to say about what happened in their groups, mm -hmm. much more. Okay, than we do today. Mm -hmm. With 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 all your with all your like, your years of experience with like groups and like um, group development, what would you say are like um, some of the essential parts of like for like any group or team wanting to be like effective in their process? Well, I have I have several things. Um, there are th many things that affect the group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, a sense of belonging or a sense of trust or a sense of safety is key to having a collaborative, collaborative group environment. Mm -hmm. We like to teach collaborative groups. We consider them to be the most productive, but they aren't necessarily always the best. Depends mm -hmm. upon the time, place, and situation. Emphasize collaborative work together mm -hmm. because 
experience, uh, research, it, you, you get, you obtain the best product from a collaborative in work environment. However, mm-hmm. it does take more energy and more time and, um, and a certain degree of trust, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not appropriate for every situation. It's just not. There are some situations where you just don't have the time or you need a certain kind of expertise or there's lots of things that might affect not wanting to be collaborative. Mm-hmm. But when you can, that's a good way to go. We, um, many people who uh, get in charge of groups become uh, first line managers, uh, et cetera, I think it's all about task, task, task. We have a task. And of course, if you're in any industry of any kind, you have a task to accomplish, of course. But if all you think about is task and not much else, you really usually don't obtain the best product. You can obtain a product, mm-hmm. but not the best product because usually it's driven by the vision of the leader and the leader by themselves is very unlikely to be able to create as dynamic and powerful an an outcome as all the people put together that would be possible but very unusual Mm -hmm. Um, but many leaders like that because they feel in charge and because they've never been trained to anything else. Also, some people like task because they're a truly collaborative environment requires a certain degree of intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you both having done therapy and run groups and all sorts of things, I can say uh, intimacy is something people are quite afraid of. Yeah. And depending upon your background, you can be a little bit afraid of or right down the line to terrified about. Mm-hmm. So even, I mean, even in couple relationships and all, uh, it, real intimacy is can be experienced as scary. So many people will block a group from growing or developing. We call that control or in some other cases, storming. But it's a, a way to block interpersonal relations from developing because we're afraid of being swallowed by the others or abandoned by the others. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a real issue. So there are a few things like that that get in the way of a group developing and making use of itself. A real good group leader makes use of the group and it as its major resources. Mm-hmm. And the and the heart, the more diverse the group, the more you have African and Hispanic and Arabic and Anglo-Saxons. And so the more you have a diverse background of people, the harder that is. But on the other hand, if you're able to, to integrate that in a true and sincere way, usually the better product you end up with. You get a very dynamic product, which is considered many factors that you by yourself would not have thought of. Mm-hmm. 
That's really. Have I answered your question? Yeah. Yeah. So just to deviate a little bit about groups, we just wanted to talk about counseling, as you've mentioned multiple times that uh, you have done, but we wanted to put a little bit of a twist on it. So for viewers who may not know or who haven't had you, uh, you are visually impaired. So what has counseling been like for you not being able to pick up on nonverbal cues and communication? Well, first off, of course, everybody who comes to see me knows that. I announce it as a teacher the first Mm -hmm. day of class. Mm -hmm. I make it clear to people so that Mm -hmm. people understand um, that if you're shaking your head, yes, I I don't see it. So Mm -hmm. it's not it's not helping as Alan is my TA this year. He'll notice that I'm frequently saying things. And then I stop and say, are people understanding this? But, but and Alan's saying, yes, they're all shaking their head. Yes, Dr. Farmer, mm-hmm. but I can't see that. I, so it's online and it's even worse. I can't see it. Yeah. So, um, I, my, I've adapted as all good counselors will, good mm-hmm. therapists will. My to my approach to my personal point of view, but not it's not. Uh, I mean, I'm guided by minds much brighter than my own. I'm guided by them very much, mm-hmm. but adapted it. And part of the adaptation is that mm, I look for tone of voice, and a big thing I look for is inconsistency. I call it the rub, R-U-B, rub. Okay. What I look for is when somebody's explaining something to me and and something they've told me in the past, rather be 10 minutes ago or two days ago, uh, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. or two months ago for that matter, but I, um, and what they're telling me now don't match. Mm-hmm. I call that the rub, and that's almost always where you find the truth. Almost always the truth is in the rub. Hmm. Why are they telling me how happy they are to be married to this person? But a couple of weeks ago, they were talking to me about wanting a divorce. Mm-hmm. And now that's, that's never happened. That's, it doesn't happen that, that boldly, but that's an example. Right. And then I would bring that up. I'd say, well, that's really an interesting contrast. Blah, 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 blah. How, what, what does that mean? And then they have to explore. Well, they have ambiguous feeling. Okay, what is that about? Blah, blah. And when you go down, then you, you find out what they're really there for. Mm-hmm. They themselves are often not clear. Mm. So it's in the rub that you frequently, it's not the only way, it's not a magic way, it's a good way for me since I can't see their facial expressions and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good way for me and anyone to catch inconsistencies because in the inconsistency, it's uh, is a truth. It's not exactly the same, not, but sort of like a uh, uh, like a free association with Freud, mm-hmm. you know, up down boy girl mother mm. devil i don't know whatever something what where, what mother devil where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> so 
that would be a kind of an inconsistency. Well, what I'm saying is not dislike that. It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not throwing words at them, but it's not the in in. It, it's consistent with that concept of something out of line with something else. Mm-hmm. Now we have to explain what the out of line is. Why would you say mother devil? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Up and down. Everybody says it. Mother, mm-hmm. father. Everybody says it. Whatever. You know what I mean. So. Yeah. Those are, um, you know, uh, someone says to you, uh, they're 24 years old, and they say that um, they cannot remember a single incident, not one single thing below the age of nine. The first time they remember anything is when they were 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and so I did not jump on it. I, I said, that's a bit unusual. And then you wait. And weeks later, you get a little bit more and a little bit more until you can finally say, that's interesting, that you can't remember anything below the age of nine, nothing at all. And yet at the age of 10, you can remember telling your mother you wish you were dead. Mm. Wow. That's an unusual like to come from nowhere, mm-hmm. you must have remembered something at the age of 10. And then that led to slowly the person remembering traumatic incidences and so on, which, of course, we could all guess, anybody would guess, were purposely being blanked out because they were too traumatic. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, you, I just, you have to wait until something comes up that you can go, this does not match that. What is going on here? Yeah. Okay, that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, with uh, with that in mind of adaptation and stuff, you must have had to adapt in all of your aspects of life with, you know, the transition to a visual impairment. So what has that been like? Or what was that like initially? Well, it, um, I did and didn't. <clears throat> I lost my eyesight at the age of seven. Mm-hmm. So... Although I did have to adapt after that, I can remember, I actually can remember at the age of seven, playing baseball out in the back alley behind our house in Chicago, mm-hmm. where an older boy would hit the ball up and pop, hit pop-ups, and then I would catch him and throw it back to him, and he'd hit pop-ups and so on. So I can remember actually doing that and being able to see, find, and catch the ball. I, mm-hmm. I can remember doing that. And then a few weeks later, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't see the ball. It it just, I could hear him hit it. It went on the air. I didn't see it, and it just disappeared. It just vanished from my visual range. I would say most of my adaptation in my youth was quite negative. Uh, I went through a lot of, uh, there's a term in Freud called reaction formation, where you take on the opposite characteristic of what you really feel. So I became, uh, I wanted to play sports, but I couldn't really play sports. So I became a very uh, aggressive basketball player um, because I really couldn't play very well. Um, Sometimes my friends would call it mugger ball because I would, I would sort of mug them to get the ball. (laughs) This I would have loved to see. I was just a skinny little kid, but so I, I, um, 
tried to deal with my sense of not being able to keep up and do things like other people by overdoing it um, in one silly way or absurd way or another. Um, so in my youth, I think that I did not, I mean, it was my way to adapt. And if you had asked me about it, I would have told you, no, I'm not doing that. But I, looking back as a grown man, of course, I could see I was. So I just didn't want to feel left out. I didn't want to feel inferior. I didn't want to feel disabled. Um, so I put myself out there, and I would say in a fair amount of potentially dangerous situations mm-hmm. um, because I was insistent to do it. I was insistent. Now, I did lose my eyesight slowly throughout my life. I see 100 times worse than I did now uh, then. So now in the last three years, I've started to use a cane. And the cane is twofold. The one is to warn you. Mm-hmm. It's a, they call it a signal cane. Mm-hmm. It's to tell you, if you see me, I'm not going to get out of your way. If you see me with the cane, it's a hint. If you don't move, we're going to collide. Mm-hmm. Or a cane crossing a street car. I probably don't see you coming down the street. So if you don't stop, there's you know, (laughs) there's going to be a problem. Uh Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So, um, and I also use it for me. On many occasions, I've tapped something before I hit it. Mm -hmm. I I have to slow down my pace now because uh, I can, now I used to run, but I wasn't very good. Well, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is, I can now walk faster than I can see. Mm-hmm. So I can get to objects before I'm able to see them. Most of the time, I'm one step away. I'm six inches be- and I see it if it's big enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but not always. And sometimes, so having the cane helps. It reaches the object even before I see the object. So um, it's good. Um, I do still sometimes step into holes and so on. <laughs> yes, there are some silly stories about that, but, um, but anyways, uh, you just do, when I'm at home, I don't need it. When I'm in a familiar environment, I don't use my cane at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and my family know not to leave shoes in the middle of the floor or, <laughs> Uh, boxes in the doorway or something that I'm surely going to fall over. Only my grandson doesn't understand that, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> but uh, on the street, I need my cane. Cause I just, you just never know what you might run into. On yeah. Very true. Very true. But uh, in my experience, Dr. Farmer, I mean, having worked for you for a, a, a bit now, um, I got to be honest for all our viewers out there, you know, when you're walking around a room, I mean, sometimes you come in and you're bringing us coffee. I'm just like, I got to ask myself sometimes, I'm, I'm, I'm completely serious. I'm like, is he pulling our leg this entire time? <laughs> I, like, I've seen you go up to the, the blackboard as well. You start drawing out models depending on maybe it's like a group theory at hand. It's just, it's very amazing. Well, yeah. Yeah. I have, I'm very lucky. Mm-hmm. Um. As far as bringing in coffee, there's not. That's really not much of a trick. They, 
when I'm making the coffee, I ask the person to help me and put all the coffee in the tray and tell me what order it's in. So I know mm-hmm. who has what, co- you know, two, double cream, cream and sugar, black. Like they tell me all of that and I just remember it. So when I come, I know who whose coffee is whose. Mm-hmm. That's right. relatively easy. Um, and they put it, they help me do the, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm very lucky about is I have a very powerful visual memory. Now, that sounds strange, and it is a little strange. My visual memory does not necessarily represent the truth, mm-hmm. but it represents what I think is in front of me. So if I if I make up and I have made up many diagrams for theories that are not part of the theory, but I made up the diagram mm-hmm. to help explain the theory to my students. So I have an uh, Gibbs is one of them actually. Uh, I've I've created a diagram in my head. I I can see the pictures in my head. I can see the street in my head. I can see it at this instant. I easily see our classrooms. I see the street in front of Concordia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I can see the whole campus in my head at this exact instant. Mm-hmm. And I'm lucky that I have that ability. So it looks like I'm doing miracles, but really I, I know what's happening around me. The thing that catches me is if you put a chair like in the doorway of the classroom or something that I might trip over because I don't expect any, I don't expect any chairs to block my way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not part of my picture. So, uh, but drawing diagrams on the blackboard, those are diagrams in my head. I'm drawing with, I'm drawing the picture in my head. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's what I do. So mm-hmm. I'm very lucky to have that ability to visualize things understand what I'm visualizing and make use of it. That's quite something. Mm-hmm. Again, still, I mean, seeing you in action sometimes, I'm just like, wow. <laughs> no, it is. It is. It is. Especially, I, I remember. Now, I will tell you Go for one it. more thing about my vision. I have no zero, no central vision in either eye. Mm-hmm. So if I stare straight at something, I don't see it at all. Mm-hmm. I do have peripheral vision out of the corners of my eyes. And I actually, I have, it's called, the term is islands, like a you know, Bermuda or Cuba or something, islands of sight. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple at the top of my eye, on the side of my eye, at the bottom of my eyes. Mm-hmm. I don't have any, you know, like where your eyes meet your nose, I don't have any islands of sight there, but above on the right, out to the sides and done. So it's actually strange that I could be looking straight at Alan and actually have not see him at all, not see him at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lucas could be walking in the door and I see the movement. I may not know it's Lucas, but I'll see movement mm-hmm. and I'll turn to that movement to see who's coming. Now, of course, it's ridiculous because if I look straight at Lucas, I won't see him either. Uh, but also, I, I, uh, if Lucas always wears a red shirt or always wears a plaid shirt or always wears, I don't know, something outstanding, mm-hmm. then I'll know it's Lucas, not because I see him, but because I see that color. And I know that Lucas is my TA in 2.30, and this is 2.30, and he hasn't been here. Then all of a sudden, I see the red shirt, and I go, oh, hi, Lucas. 
well, Lucas thinks I see him, but actually I just saw a flash of red as he walked in the door. Well, that, that, that's good. But there, there's a funny thing. I think you have the wrong guy, Dr. Farmer, who walked in. because <laughs> Lucas? <laughs> oh, Lucas, what? Lucas is Luca. <laughs> Luca. Uh, well, Luca, see, I'm very good at catching your red shirt, but I <laughs> Luca, I'm sorry, Luca. Don't worry, don't okay. worry. That's going, to, that's going to stick with him for a while now, Dr. Yeah. Farmer. But, Luca, uh, I'm sorry. I, okay. I do have another question I'd like to ask you. I mean, um, I think I, I brought this up with you sometime last year, um, but just to, to go over it again, would you consider yourself an intuitive person? Not really. giving, no? How come? Well, I don't really believe in intuition as you as it's stated. I don't believe in it. I do believe there is something that looks my wife is wonderful. If you saw you would say she's the most intuitive person you ever met, but it's not true. She's the most perceptive person you've ever met. I think what we call intuition is very, very often uh, we pick up little cues. Now, I'll explain. My wife grew up in Colombia till the age of eight. She only spoke Spanish, no other language, and she grew up in an entirely different culture, entirely. Mm -hmm. At the age of eight, her mother and her brother and sister and her all came to Canada. The, her father was supposed to come after. He actually died and didn't make it, but he was supposed to follow up. <clears throat> when she arrived here, her family refused to speak any Italian or Spanish. Um, she did not speak Spanish, although she could recognize Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she did speak, but they refused because they wanted her to learn English. Well, that really was torment for her. And schools in those days did not have um, the kind of English second language and all the sensitivity that we have today. Mm -hmm. She was basically thrown into a classroom where everybody spoke English. She spoke none at all, and she had to make do. And that was terribly difficult. Mm -hmm. So she learned to be perceptive. She had to pick up on tone of voice, visual cues, et cetera, et cetera. So she, picked, she learned very quickly as a survival technique to pick up subtle visual cues from teachers or other students so that she could try to figure out what was going on around her since she did not understand and nobody was slowing it down to explain it to her. So... Um, she became so perceptive. Uh, can I, may I tell you a story? Yeah. Sure, and go right of for course. it. So I was doing testing for the city of Ottawa years ago, as it was as my profession. And we were looking for people who had disabilities to try to get them into specialized programs so that they could get employed. I was not truthfully looking for people who were mentally challenged, although I did find some, nor was I looking for people who had psychiatric disorders, although I did find some. I was looking for people who might have dyslexia and dysgraphia and so on, learning type disabilities, and that's why they had so much trouble in school. Mm -hmm. 
Anyways, I was testing this one lady, and she was taking so, so long to do the testing. I mean, in slow, slow motion was practically backwards. So Christina said to me, because she was helping me, do you think she could be doing this on purpose? And I said, no, I, this is a learning disability, honey. This is, no, what, what makes, well, I picked up a kind of a strange sort of smile on her face that I didn't like. And I think she's doing this on purpose. Mm. And I said, well, that's why they hire me, because you can't just look at somebody and come up with it. However, I did follow through with some other tests, such as the MMPI looking for psychiatric dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And, oh, my God, she scored as a psychopath. Oh. And wow. as a liar. Mm -hmm. And I think as a liar in all three, they have three liar scales, as I remember. Maybe I'm wrong. She scored as a liar in all three liar scales. And so anyways, and I went back to Christine and I said, oh, my God, you're absolutely right. Mm. She's doing this on purpose. Down. This, this, I can't. And Christina picked that up from a subtle, almost cruel smile that she saw on this lady's face. You don't say that's oh, crazy. Yeah. So you would say, My God, she's intuitive, but I don't think that's intu intuition. I think that's a good IQ and highly perceptive, mm -hmm. highly, highly perceptive. And she had to become that way as a survival strategy as a child. And to this day, and again and again, she's always amazes me that how she can do that. That's quite something, really. Mm -hmm. Just picking up from that. So, if, anyways, that's go my ahead. answer to intuitive. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not right. intuitive because I don't pick up those subtle cues. But you do um, listen. That's the only part. Yep. There's more to the story of intuitive, but I'm just sure. that's far enough for your TV, your show. <laughs> but uh, there's more to it than I said. But that's a big piece of it. Well, that's okay. So We're going to have you I'm back. I'm not intuitive because I don't pick up. Now, I do pick up strange strange words, strange um, uh, uh, tone of voice, things like that make me – I'm sensitive. I go, that's a strange way to say I'm happy. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that doesn't sound happy to me, that tone of voice as an example. Mm-hmm. So, but that's what I think we think intu intuition is that we often, we say we're intuitive because we don't know what cues we're really picking up. Like I said, a cruel smile or a unusual tone of voice. And we can't, we can't recall why, what is it that I picked up? I don't know. But we always say there's something. Mm -hmm. we, we're not aware what it is, but that's what we're doing. I think most of the time. I like that. That is something. What I'd like to explore now with you, Dr. Farmer, and um, I find this quite fascinating as this semester, um, unlike uh, last academic year where I was T, uh, I was TAing for your 232s. Um, now we have 335, which is, um, uh, what is that? That would be uh, uh, power and conflict resolution. Conflict. That's right. That's right. It's a wonderful course. And, I have, uh, as well as the others, have picked up that you have many, many fascinating stories 
regarding how major events in your lifetime have influenced conflicts of sorts, have you know made you into the person that you are today. And I would just like to take a moment to, to maybe for us just to take a look at how some of these stories, which you're going to get into, maybe you can give us one or two, how uh, you give, at least myself, the idea that you're a man of the people, you know, a people's mm-hmm. champion, that you've looked out for people in all sorts of um, hairy situations. And I just like to know, like, why is that the case? Why, why would Dr. Farmer do things like that? Well, I'm, um, I'm highly sensitive to a sense of disempowerment, of course, because of my vision and my need to count on other people for everything. And, um, and I'm, so I'm, I'm highly sensitive to that feeling of disempowerment for myself. And when I see other people being taken advantage of or screwed or harmed in some way, uh, I can see, uh, understand their, by their behavior, by their behavior, their sense of disempowerment or their sense of hopelessness or helplessness or something. And, um, of course, I personally know how bad that feels. Mm-hmm. So I like to help other people. Uh, it's their choice of, as to where, what they do and where they go. That's up to them. But not to be let out of something because they've been disempowered in a, situa- in a given situation. I also don't believe it's right, morally right, for us people to allow another person to be harmed mm-hmm. and just say, oh, well, that's none of my business. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, it's not who I am. And that's all that's to it. Mm-hmm. Now, I certainly understand women not wanting to get some drunken man who's acting really aggressively and weird on a bus and not to want to get in a in trouble with them. I can understand that. I, I even agree with it. But uh, at the same time, I find it hard to do nothing, say nothing, take no action, and allow someone else, particularly if a woman but or man, but be harmed, intimidated, mm-hmm. threatened by some a person or a situation. I find it um, it's just not part of my my character or my belief system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just to quickly tie into it, um, I recall a couple of weeks ago we you brought up the the civil rights movement, right, and how that had a uh, a a deep impact, you know, on where you were at the time, what was going on, and just given that you're talking about disempowerment, I mean, if you wouldn't mm-hmm. mind just giving us just linking the two to what you were currently experiencing at the time and based off what you just said. Mm-hmm. Well, I, at the time, this was the 1950s and 60s when I was growing up. I, at the time, did not experience anything related to race relationships. Where I was growing up was a white Anglo-Saxon ghetto in New Jersey. Um, so on a personal level, I didn't, 
I, you know, we had no people of color or anything in my schools. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, we were insulated from all of that. But I knew of it. I saw it on TV. I couldn't believe things like that happened. I really couldn't believe it. Like I would see people demonstrating in the South in you know 1960s, mm-hmm. early 60s in particular, but late to I see people demonstrate, and I, uh, I just I couldn't believe that people would treat one another that way. It was just outrageous mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> to see that they would release dogs on men, women, and children and beat them, and it's like the police would beat them with sticks. And it was like, I, I, it was inconceivable to me. Why is this happening? Who could do, who could, who could reason that this is an okay thing to do? Mm -hmm. Who could reason that they have a right to do this? And I knew of a priest, um, father uh, Ray Simonette. He's must be dead by now. He was a good 10 years older than me, maybe more young, and actually, one of the things about Father Simonette was wonderful. He was a, he looked like a football player. He was about six foot four and about 250 or more pounds. He, he looked like a football player. He was a big, strong, uh, imposing man and absolutely gentle. And he would, he was a priest and actually got in trouble with the Catholic Church because he took action. He went to the South and he demonstrated passively that he, he let himself get beat, hit, etc., but it did not react, did not fight back, etc. And I just thought that was amazingly wonderful. And he became, he moved into the Patterson, New Jersey, which was uh, 45 minutes from where I live. And they had a large black ghetto there. And it was a very unpleasant place to to live, mm-hmm. dangerous, not well kept. Um, and he had a church there, and he was uh, trying to get the voting rights for the people of Patterson, mm-hmm. black, white, blue, or green, everybody. But he was working in that ghetto area. And he asked me if I would help him. And I would have done anything for Father Simonette. I had so much admiration for him. The biggest admiration I had was how big and strong he was and how gentle he was at the same time. Like, I found that very appealing. Like, this is a true kind. He's not kind because he's little or wimpy. or He's kind because he's kind, because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't have to be kind. He believes in it. Mm-hmm. So I went down and... Uh, <laughs> so do you want me to tell you one of my stories or not yeah of course. yes i think you want to tell us too <laughs> no i like to tell my stories go for it dr farmer so of course people know i don't see well so i went down so he wanted me he had a group of about half white and half black young teenagers i was one of them mm-hmm. i was around 15 i don't remember exactly something half white and half black and he, he wanted us knocking on doors, handing out a little pamphlet, and just announcing to everybody in the ghetto that 
we were, there was a meeting coming up. I, I don't remember that it's too long, but let's say there was a meeting in the church basement next Sunday night or Friday afternoon, no, Friday night or something. And we were inviting everybody to come to the meeting so that we could prepare so that to get everybody registered for voting because there was a vote coming up. So we were to go door to door and do this. So Father Seminet saw me there, but then he decided he didn't want me going. It turned out there were three people at the end, and he always everybody went out in twos. Nobody went out alone. There's always one person knocking at the door and one person back from the door so that if there was trouble, you would always had somebody to run for help or something. So it ended up to be three people. And with my bad eyesight, he certainly wasn't going to let me go alone. Mm -hmm. So he put me up with these other two students. So there were three of us. So we went out together with these pamphlets for about a block. But I felt like this is crap. This is crap. I'm really what I might as well not be here. I'm I'm the guy left in the street while the other two people go to the door. Why the hell am I here? So by the end of that block, I said to the other two people, give me some of those. I said, I'm I'm going to do I'm going around the corner and do that other block myself. Mm-hmm. The people said, I don't think Father Seminette wants you doing that. And I said, screw them. I'm doing I'm not here to do nothing. <laughs> So I went around the block and started handing out pamphlets. Nice. <laughs> and got to the door of a young 16-year-old black girl and started to think this is okay. <laughs> and so she and I spent like half an hour talking together. So when the other people, <laughs> yes, I was trying to pick up this girl. So <laughs> it would have been, by the way, Knew it. a suicidal act had it happened. I am sure I would I would have been killed. Anyways, then I went on, but I was very much delayed. So the other people got back, and they said to Father Simonette, he said, oh, where's Tim? And they told him what I did, and he got scared. And he sent them out to find me right away. Go find him. Go find, Don't leave. He's not to be out there alone. Go find him. Finally, they found me, and I got back, and he took one look at me, and he just said, Trying to pick up girls, weren't you? <laughs> and I said, yes, I was. <laughs> I love and that. he laughed and laughed and laughed. He thought that was so funny. <laughs> I don't know how he knew it. I don't know how he saw it. Maybe I looked guilty. I don't know what happened. But I, that's such a funny story to me, even 50 years later, 60 years later, almost almost 60 years later. Sounds I like still a... remember that. And I remember him laughing. But he was worried when I was alone. He was. Mm -hmm. It was getting dark. Night was coming now, mm -hmm. and uh, he was worried. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's my social commitment. <laughs> oh, very nice, very nice. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a, a good father was a pretty perceptive fellow himself, eh? Yes, he was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. and he knew me. Yeah, he knew me. Oh, that's good. Well, Doctor Farmer. Thank you for sharing that and just uh, taking the moment to to explore that and, and, and getting personal and mm -hmm. uh, with the story. It's just, um, it's, I just find it very interesting to know how, I mean, it, everything in a sense is in, interrelated, you know, where we're coming from with our experiences, what we've gone through, mm -hmm. major events, you know, throughout society. And here we are now just, uh, just sharing it. 
So mm-hmm. we, we just wanted to thank you for that. Um, I, I think we're going to be closing soon. But uh, just before we get there, uh, Dr. Farmer, uh, Tim, Timmy, Timothy. What one do you prefer? Not Timmy. Why not Timmy? You want me to tell my Timmy story? I think, well, yes. yeah, I think yes, you should. You do. I think you should. <laughs> well, at the beginning of every class, students, of course, want to know what to call me. And I announce that you can call me many things. You may call me Dr. Farmer. You may call me professor or prof. You may call me uh, Tim. But you may not call me Timothy or Timmy. If Timothy is my name, but it's what my mother called me when I was in trouble. Timothy, come to the kitchen. I knew I had done something and I had just gotten caught for it. Often I didn't know which one I was caught for, but I knew I was caught for something. (laughs) Because it was Timothy. That's, so that was the official you're in trouble sound. And it can't be Timmy because that's what my wife calls me on Saturday night when I'm going to get lucky. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Bed? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay, bit so those are the two you can't call them. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but I actually just had a, an idea for the, the episode. Um, would you be comfortable with it if we call this episode... Saturday nights with Timmy, aka Dr. Farmer. Fine with me. Fine with me. (laughs) I don't mind. I love it. I love it. Oh, boy. That's great. That's great. All right. Uh, So, Dr. Farmer. Does that mean I'm going to get screwed here? (laughs) No, no, no. no. (laughs) Not one bit. Not one bit. Don't worry. Okay. You've always had our back, you know, as a professor, you know, a teacher, a mentor, a friend. And uh, we we have your back here. And again, we, we thank you. Um, very much yes that's it all right guys so dr farmer i do believe you have some concluding words for us actually yes but i i'm sorry but i told you you would need to remind me oh yes but i'll (laughs) tell you what before we get there before we get there i do believe luca has one more question to ask you oh oh one last question um what would be one piece of advice to give people regarding um communication and dealing with conflict Mm, good question. Hey, ask the question one more time, please. Uh, what would be one piece of advice you'd give people regarding uh, communication and also dealing with conflict? Uh, be patient and empathetic. Mm-hmm. Almost every situation, the, op- the your opposing people, your opposition has a point. They mm-hmm. almost always have a truth. It may not be your truth, may not be one you recognize right off the bat, Mm -hmm. but underneath it all, there is a truth and you need to be empathetic and patient and try to understand their truth. That doesn't mean their truth is better than yours, more important than yours, but you're going to have conflict if you can't understand it. First, you have to understand their truth. Mm -hmm. That will help avoid tremendous amounts of conflict. Mm -hmm. And what is the number one way of getting there, Dr. Farmer? And I'm leaning into this because there's one tip that you tell all your students to do. So- mm-hmm. I tell all my students a hundred times, ask questions. Yeah. yeah. Stop thinking you know the damn answer. Ask <laughs> questions. So if somebody says something, instead of saying, you're insulting me, say, I don't understand what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. Or I don't understand that point. 
find out what's behind their comment. Mm-hmm. Don't don't assume you know. Don't don't be sure you know. Or even if you think I don't know, well, all the more reason. Ask questions. Mm-hmm. That will show patience and empathy. And the questions are real. They're not trick questions. It's a real. I don't understand what you mean by that. You want to know. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Awesome. Great advice. <laughs> all right. So the outro line that we would like you to say, I will remind you, is we are Alpha Relations, driving we are alpha, forward. Wait a minute. We are Alpha something? We are Relation? Alpha Relations. We are Alpha Relations. Driving change forward. Driving change. We are Alpha Relations. Driving change forward. Yes. We are Alpha Relations. Driving change forward. Yeah. Oh, I am your father. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah.